All right. Well, today I want to talk a little bit about the Christmas story. This time of year is a time of hope. It's a it's life changing hope. It's what the whole Christmas season is about. It's what makes Christmas time so special that there's this little bit of extra hope in a dark world and it unites us and pacifies us and makes the world a little bit better place for a few weeks in December. And the hope from this season pours out of the very heart and message of Christmas. In a time of darkness and suffering and oppression in a small, unassuming village called Bethlehem, hope came to us in the form of a baby. John the Apostle said, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There is light in the darkness. There is hope. And hope is something that we are always in great need of. Searching for, longing for, especially in these dark times. There is a part of the Christmas story that I want to focus on today that I think we often try to avoid or glass over. It's uncomfortable. Uh, It's hard to understand. It's dark. We like to think of Christmas just as this joyful season, and we really want to hone in on these shepherds and the choirs of angels, but there is a dark moment in the Christmas story that we have to talk about and that I think is appropriate for us as a church to talk about today. It's in Matthew's Gospel, and in Matthew's Gospel we get some great moments He opens with a genealogy showing that Jesus is the heir to David's throne. Matthew's gospel is really written to his peers, which are Jewish people and the new Jewish converts or the people that would be Jewish converts. And so he's pretty fixated on all the prophecies. He needs them to understand that, hey, Jesus really is the Messiah you've been hearing about all your life. It's him. He's here. I can prove it. He's he's got the receipts to show. And so he opens up his gospel with a genealogy. And the genealogy serves to show us uh, the proof that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of King David, that he is in the line of David, and that is one of the essential pieces of prophecy uh, around the Messiah. He moves from this genealogy uh, to the miraculous birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. And then in chapter 2, he talks about the wise men. We love the wise men. The wise men are so much fun. They're great. They have great outfits in every nativity set. And the wise men show up at Herod's place after they've followed a star from the east. They come to the palace of King Herod. They tell King Herod, who is the king over the Jewish people at the time, that they're going to find the king of the Jews, the Messiah, who has been foretold, that they know that he's being born, and they're asking him to ask his scholars, where is your Messiah supposed to be born? Now Herod tries to play it cool with the wise men. He's like, oh, I'm so glad to hear this. This is great news. I'm so excited about the Messiah. But in reality, Herod is not excited about the Messiah. Herod is not a real Jewish king. Herod's a political puppet placed there by the Roman government. He's a politician and a very skilled politician. He's found his way into this position of power where he can do what he wants as long as he submits to the Roman Empire. His only real job is to keep the people pacified so there's no issues with their uh, Roman government. And so Herod knows that this Messiah has been foretold to overthrow the oppression of all people. Herod is the oppression. 
And so he is pretty concerned when he hears that the Messiah has been born. He's also already been told by the Magi. The Magi say, the true king of the Jews has been born to the current king of the Jews. It's honestly pretty, you know, they're not very good at reading the room, these wise men. So Herod decides he's going to tell the wise men exactly where the Messiah is meant to be born, which is Bethlehem. And he sends them to Bethlehem and he says, hey, I'm so excited about this. Such great news. When you come back, I want you to make sure you come by the palace and tell me if you saw him there and who he is and where his address is so that I can go and worship him as well. So the Magi, they go to Bethlehem, and they find the baby, and they worship the baby. They, they give him some pretty standard baby shower stuff like gold and frankincense and myrrh, the same things we all end up with. And, and then an angel tells them to go home a different way and avoid Herod, and so that's what they do. This same angel appears next to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, and tells him that he and his family need to go hide in Egypt uh, because trouble is coming. Matthew reminds us that that's another important prophecy of the Messiah, and so we now see that that's taking place. And so now that those people are gone, Herod is starting to get wise. It says here in chapter 2, verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is not an easy part of the Christmas story to swallow. Oftentimes, we read through this as quickly as we can. We try not to think about what it means. We try not to think about the consequences of this moment. It happened so long ago, it's easy to just see it as a story. Massacres of innocence are not really what the Christmas vibe is that we're going for. King Herod had all the boys to and under murdered in this small town of Bethlehem. Most scholars agree it was anywhere from 10 to 30 children. Can you imagine the heartbreak of this village? The pain that would ripple out for generations. Matthew cites this prophecy that predicted this in verse 18. He says, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel is weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. If you're not familiar with Jeremiah... He's a prophet from Judah at the time of their exile or just before it. Now, in Israelite history, just a brief overview, uh, about 600 years before Jesus came is when Jeremiah lived. And this is just before they would be invaded by the Babylonian Empire, which would play up siege works and siege Jerusalem. And once they took it, they would drive the people out of it, even taking away their young men and their nobles and their leaders back to Babylon to raise in their culture. The book of Daniel tells us about what that was like. 
And so Jeremiah's job is to tell the Israelites. Now, the Israelites have this coming because for generations, they've worshipped false gods. They turned their attention away from God. They've had now a a bunch of kings in the line of kings who would even stop the temple uh, sacraments altogether. That There was no sacrifice being laid out for the people. People even forget how to worship God in all of the idolatry that they are living in. And as a result of that, God lays this judgment out before them that they would be exiled. And in reality, it would never be the same again in Jerusalem. It would never be the same again. Never again would they be their own people. They would be under the rule of others for the rest of time until Jesus came and he brought deliverance. And so Jeremiah's job is to tell people that these horrible things are coming. Jeremiah is a teenager when God calls him to this and he's like, I don't think I really want to do that. And he does it anyways because he loves God and is just his servant and willing to serve however he is called. And he brings these messages. He's not a very popular person. He brings these messages of exile and judgment to the people of Israel. And it goes on and on and on. And then we get to chapter 31. And in chapter 31, Jeremiah brings this prophecy. And this prophecy, like many of the prophecies around this time period, holds dual meaning. He's prophesying two things at once. He's talking about the people being driven out of Jerusalem and into exile, but he's also talking about this great suffering that is coming in Matthew chapter 2. We see the original text in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Ramah is a neighborhood of Bethlehem, and it's where Rachel, who's cited in this verse, is buried. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Benjamin, Rachel is weeping for her children and she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This is a prophecy of pain. But here's what I need you to see. That actually Jeremiah's whole prophecies take a turn in chapter 31. Where he has prophesied judgment and pain, he shifts his attention to hope. Look at the next verse. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. And there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. He tells them they're about to go through some really hard times. But right on the other side of that, there will be hope, healing, restoration, redemption, deliverance. And chains broken. He goes on for the rest of the chapter the same way. Hope, hope, hope. And then he even prophesies on how Jesus would complete the old covenant with Israel and bring a new covenant to the world. There's another difficult moment in the Bible, a massacre worse than the one in Matthew chapter 2. And it takes place in Exodus chapter 1. This verse about Rachel weeping for her children would have brought the audience immediately back to that moment. It would have reminded them of this other difficult moment. Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob, who would be renamed by God as Israel. 
Israel had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel that we learn about in Old Testament history. And uh, Rachel was the, the wife that Jacob really, he had multiple wives. It was a different culture in a different time, and you can read all about it in the book of Genesis. It's a great story. Jacob's heart really belonged to Rachel, and Rachel had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. That's important because Joseph is the one who settled Israel in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 1, it tells us that over time, the pharaohs of Egypt went from admiring the sons of Rachel uh, and, and their sons to fearing the descendants. And as a result of that, the people of Israel would become slaves in Egypt. And after about 400 years of slavery, a pharaoh was born who was so concerned about the Hebrew people becoming too many in number and overpowering them that he put forth a terrible decree. He ordered that the sons of Israel, when they are born, be thrown into the Nile River. And Rachel was weeping for her children, for they are no more. But in Exodus chapter 2, the story continues to tell us that a son of Israel survived that massacre. His name is Moses. Moses was placed in a basket and floated down the river where he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Maybe you know the rest from the movie The Prince of Egypt. Moses would become the deliverer, the one who would break, God would break their chains and use Moses to lead them out of captivity and into freedom. There is this horrible moment of pain and suffering unlike anything they had ever been through before. But just on the other side of it was chains breaking, redemption, restoration, freedom, and peace. Great hope on the other side of great pain. So Jeremiah, the prophet, tells them in a way that would remind them of that season that they are about to go through suffering again. And they're going to go through a huge trial. And for the exile, this one was their fault. A result of their actions. They lost their way. And as a result, there would be weeping in Rachel's house, suffering, pain, and loss. But on the other side of this pain would be redemption and restoration and healing and the greatest hope they have ever had. And then Matthew, we see again, great weeping in Rachel's house. Pain, suffering, loss, innocent people paying the price. But on the other side of that loss and that pain and that suffering came the greatest chain breaker in all of eternity. The message of the gospel is what follows this story in the book of Matthew. I don't believe it was God's desire for all of these people to suffer. I don't think that's in his nature and what we know to be true about him. But I know that in this suffering, he offered them hope. And that hope is in freedom. And that hope is in grace. And that hope is in sacrifice. And that hope is in peace. And that hope is in Jesus. Maybe you've seen some suffering recently, some hard things. I know I have. Some of it I brought on myself, some of it I didn't. And it's hard to go 
through things like this and keep your head up. Keep your eyes focused forward. It's hard to go through dark days and see any hope of light in your future. But this is Christmas time. And so there is always hope. So here's three things that we can take home today. Number one, there is pain in the story. It's important for us to remember at Christmas time, as we do share in the joy and the hope and the peace and the blessing of Christmas, it's just important for us to remember that even at this most joyful time, there was still pain in the story. We can't overlook it. We can't forget it. We can't just move on past it. The people of Bethlehem went through an absolutely devastating hardship. I wonder how many of them had no idea why they were going through what they were going through. We don't get a whole lot of information, but we know from historical records, Bethlehem was a town of about a thousand people, not a huge town. Uh, And that is if you counted the outlying villages. And Jesus is born there during a census at a crowded, busy, confusing time. Uh, We know the angels told the shepherds of his birth and the shepherds told other people. So there was a commotion that happened in the town of Bethlehem the day that Jesus was born. Maybe some people remembered that. Maybe Joseph and Mary were kind of, you know, people either were, were excited about them being in Bethlehem or they were a little bit weirded out by it, kept their distance. We don't really know. I know that the wise men only knew to go to Bethlehem and they turned up at the house of Mary where, Joseph, where uh, Jesus was about a two-year-old boy. And so they must have gotten there and asked around and said, where is the Messiah? And somebody said, oh, Messiah? I don't know, but there was a weird thing with some shepherds a couple years ago. That was, the, that was Joseph and Mary. They're just down the block here. And somebody knew something. But I'm sure there was somebody that knew nothing. And in this story of incredible pain, there are people who are suffering who have no idea why they are suffering. Just another night until a soldier bursts through the doors. They're entering into the greatest pain they would ever go through. They don't know why. There are people living in Bethlehem who had no idea why they were suffering the way they were suffering. I also imagine that there were those who never found out why they went through that. When Jeremiah wrote this prophecy, it was before the exile of Judah. The people were exiled for 70 years. That means that the people that heard this hard news first and then lived it out in its darkest days never got to see the hope on the other side. They never got to see the restoration. They only got to experience the pain. There's pain in the story, and sometimes we do not get to know why. Sometimes we do know why, but it doesn't make it any easier. Maybe there's been pain in your story lately. Maybe there's been pain in your heart, pain in your home. Maybe you don't understand why, and maybe you never will. Maybe it's pain that had nothing to do with you, but you suffered because of it anyways. There's pain in the story. But we can never forget that God sees our pain. 
the pain of Bethlehem is seen and remembered by God. That's why it's written in Matthew's gospel. Matthew wanted to show us this prophecy fulfilled, but the Holy Spirit moved Matthew to put that in these pages so that this story would not be forgotten. He remembers your pain. He sees it. And that's important. There is pain in the story, and we see it, and we acknowledge it, and we take comfort in knowing that God sees it and remembers it as well. God sees our pain. Psalms 56, 8 says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Our Father is a compassionate Father. He sees what you've been through. He sees the hurt. He cares. When we suffer, we don't suffer alone. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Your pain is real. Your pain matters. It matters to God, and it matters to the church. But even in that pain, and even despite the trouble that it brings, it's also important for us to realize that the story doesn't end with pain. There is hope in the story. There is healing and restoration in the story. There is freedom in the story. There is peace in the story. Another thing that is interesting about this prophecy of Jeremiah, Rachel's sons are Benjamin and Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt. That's how he ended up there. His brothers came back and told Rachel and told their father Israel that he was dead, that he had died. And so that's what they believed. And Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin before she would ever learn that Joseph was still alive. And not only alive, but second in command over all of Egypt. In the end of Genesis, where we find this story, we find that there was a famine where Israel and his sons uh, were living and uh, really across that whole region, but that Egypt had prepared for it. And so they go to Egypt. They send uh, not Israel, but the brothers of Joseph go to Egypt to seek aid, to get some, some food to, to live on. And when they walk into the room where they've been told to go to make their appeal for grain, much to their surprise, they see the brother who they beat up and, and sold into slavery, Joseph, who they assumed was either a slave somewhere or dead. He's the one they have to ask for grain. And Joseph responds with kindness, and he just says, I will, I will help you and uh, go and tell our father to move here and move all of our people and our things here, and you live here where we have enough food, but as you go, you leave Benjamin with me. And they're very nervous. They're concerned that revenge is coming. And so as they go back to their father, they go without Benjamin, and now Benjamin and Joseph are both gone. They don't know if they're going to be restored or not. The sons of Rachel, both of them. But a few verses later, Jacob discovers that not only is Benjamin okay, but Joseph is alive. In this story, what was lost or thought to be lost was completely restored. Jeremiah's prophecy points us to Rachel for a reason. Israel would be exiled, but that exile would come to an end. 
Jerusalem would be rebuilt. The walls would be rebuilt. The temple would be rebuilt. But it wasn't going to be rebuilt the way that it was. And the system they had before wasn't ever coming back in the same way. Because God knew that even though you're never going to get back exactly what you had, I have something better in mind for you on the other side. That there is something better I'm restoring beyond your wildest dreams and imagination to the city of Jerusalem. Instead of a temple where they could go to worship, which they would have a second temple. But God was preparing the work of the Holy Spirit that we might become a temple. That because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we might have a fresh hope and a new understanding of how to interact with God. God knew those things. These mothers who mourned their children in Bethlehem did not get their children back. But because of Jesus, who this story is about, these mothers would have the hope of being reunited with their children again. So here's something that's important to hear. The restoration in the story and the hope in the story don't erase the pain of the story. What is lost is lost. But... There is hope for tomorrow. I know that we've been through some pain here, church. Restoration is coming. Hope is coming. God is not finished here. Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, says being confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When I was a teenager, I was grounded. I had made some teenager-style mistakes. I was in my room listening to Q104.5, classic rock, and just thinking that nobody understood me like Axl Rose. And one day, my dad came uh, up the stairs early in the morning before going to work. I heard his, he's the loudest stair climber you've ever heard. We all knew of his location at all times. And I was nervous, you know, because I was in trouble. And expected a knock at my door, and I didn't get one. Instead, a piece of paper slid under my door. And on it, he wrote, I have a life verse for you, son. Being confident in this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It was true then and it is true now. He's not done with me. He's not done with you. He's not done with this church. I don't know what kind of pain you've been through. Maybe it's the kind of pain that you can't see past. Maybe it's the kind of pain that feels like it's never going to be okay again. Maybe it's the kind of pain that makes you want to just give up because how could things ever get any better? It can get better. God is not done with you yet. There is hope in your story. There is restoration in your story. And I can say that with confidence that despite some pain that we've been through here, God is not done with the gathering church. He will finish what he started here because that is what he always does. We acknowledge the pain we've been through. We acknowledge that it still hurts, that there is still work to do. 
But we believe that the work that he began here in us, the lives that have been changed, the hearts that have been filled, the community that has been built, the eternities that have been won in Jesus' name, that work isn't finished yet and he will keep working it out in us, in me and in you and in this church until the day that he comes back. And I know that this is true because our hope was never in a person or in a place or in an organization. Your hope isn't in me, an imperfect man trying to do my best to get it right. Your hope isn't in your spouse or your friends or an organization. Our hope is in Jesus. And he isn't finished yet. Number three, our hope is in Jesus. Bethlehem suffered. But on the other side of their suffering lay the hope of all mankind. Micah was another one of these prophets who came and He told us about what was coming. He said, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Bethlehem was prophesied great pain, but they were also prophesied great hope. And the hope that they had and the hope that they have is in Christ Jesus. We've never claimed to be anything other than imperfect people doing our best to follow Jesus. I'm not perfect. I'm broken. I make mistakes. And the people that you're going to meet in this church, the community that you're going to build, I have to tell you, not a perfect one in the bunch. Every single one of us is liable to mess it up sometimes. But I think this is one of the things that makes this church special. We've never tried to be anything other. We've never tried to be anything other than a broken, imperfect people taking one step at a time closer to Jesus. So we'll just take another step and we'll take another step and we'll take another step and we'll just get better and we'll build up hope and we'll go through pain and we'll build up hope and we'll go through pain and we'll pursue Him and we'll serve Him and we'll give to Him and we'll give Him everything that we have and just do everything that we can to know Him better and better and more and more until the day that we hear Him call our name and we get to go home is all we can do. My favorite telling of the Christmas story is John's, and I read it every year, and I know you, you, you know, it's not the most Christmassy, but I love reading about the shepherds and the barn and the magi are great, but what I love about John is that he tells us what really happened on that day. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Interesting thing about light and darkness, the deepest, biggest, heaviest darkness can be broken with the smallest amount of lights. Hope after the pain. 
light in the darkness, peace on the other side of struggle. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We move forward to continue to do the things he created us to do. Jesus is our message. Jesus is our hope. And to know him and to make him known is our mission. And we will stay on that mission until we are called home. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with him yet, all you know so far is the struggle, the pain, the disappointment, the darkness. You don't have to take one more step forward in darkness. There is light for you today. If you're ready to make a decision that would bring a flood of hope into your heart, it just begins with a prayer, just belief, accepting what he's done for you, what he's done for me. It doesn't matter where you are or who you are, what mistakes you made yesterday, what mistakes you made already this morning. He offers grace, kindness, forgiveness, compassion, mercy, and hope for you. And so if you're ready to receive it today, every head bowed, every eye closed, just pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for the mistakes I've made and the people who were hurt by it. I worship you today. I believe that you are who you say you are. And so everything that I am from this day on, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.